Hi, this is Maxwell Majernik. I am the creator and writer of Prospects. You can find me at on Twitter at Snowball Max and find issues one and two of Prospects on Band of Bards. And you're watching Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We're joined today by a comic creator, uh, a very talented one at that. I happen to have read two of his comics called Prospects. He is, of course, being published by Band of Bards, which was on the show earlier this year, or maybe it was last year. I don't know. It, it's been a long year, but it's been a fun year. We're joined today by the ever-talented Maxwell Madrenek. How are you doing today? Yeah, glad to be here. Really excited. For those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person and, of course, the comic that you have created, tell us who you are and what it's all about. So I am Maxwell Majernik, creator and writer of Prospects. Been doing it for a few years. I started, I went to school for dramatic writing, and then I ended up doing a little bit of blog work. I've worked with a few different comic blogs, a few different video game blogs. And then the last few years, I really wanted to get back into the creative side of it. So I have put a few ideas together. Uh, the one that really took off was Prospects. The story of Prospects is a, it's a town. And this town is kind of run by two mad scientists. And within this town, they have figured out the secret of immortality. They go through the town and pretty much they pluck people out of the town that show any type of talent. So pretty much if you're smart, if you're athletic, anything, they pull you to be a part of this war. This town has been through it for so long that they see this pretty much as an honor to be taken by one of the scientists. Throughout the story, you kind of see that it's very important to this town that you show enough talent to be essentially taken and abducted by the scientists. So going through this story, we have two main characters. We have Colin, who is 30 years old. He's never been selected by anyone, by either the scientists. He doesn't have friends. And then you have, kind of, he's on the outside looking in. The other main character is Andrew. And he is 18 years old, kind of a five-star player, extremely popular. He's on the inside looking out. He is what they think will kind of turn the tides of uh, this long battle between these two scientists. So the whole story is about the, both of them kind of working on you know, how they fit within this large, within this town that they see them in such different ways. And that's the one thing I loved about this. I, I didn't know who to root for, so to speak, because that, that was the most difficult part because I thought they were both of their stories, you know, I kind of felt for both of them uh, from a, from a reader standpoint, because we've all been in, in Colin's shoes at one point in time in real life where we're still there. When it comes to Andrew, um, I'm not a five-star anything whatsoever i'm five three at most but i mean it works <laughs> out so that you know you, you see someone with talent that's trying to escape and it, it's amazing the the two dichotomies you have in the, in the series that was an important part of it where as i was putting it together i had the colin character pretty much figured out at the beginning because that is what i related to the most as i was getting older you just see that there's so much kind of pressure on that window right you go from high school to college and you have everything figured out and if that window closes you just kind of get pushed to the side a little bit and it's not, there's still plenty more to offer kind of, I really like that the idea of the outside looking in. And then as I started working through it, it's like, I didn't want to have just one vision. So as I started thinking, everyone feels like Colin at some point, they feel like Andrew as well. They have that feeling of that hopefulness and the fact that everyone is kind of hanging on by a thread of like, what are they going to do next? And that's where I, Andrew started to come together. And I just love that idea of it being this mirrored story of them both experiencing this life in such different ways, but very similar at the same time. 
So looking at then the world that you built here, you said this was the one of the, your more successful uh, comics you've written, though. Uh, I'd love to know your other comics you've created that you may not feel are, are as successful. But that'd be nice to know what else you've done. Kind of in the pitching stage, it's Path of Monsters. The way I've kind of put it together, the logline is it's Kill Bill with the Universal Monsters. It is one day Frankenstein wakes up, the bride is next to him. She says that, you know, she doesn't feel right. Something's off. So he rips the covers off of her to see what's wrong. And her whole body has been taken. So the whole story, it's essentially a revenge quest where he has to go through to find who stole her body. But he has to bring her with him because he can't leave her there. So he uses the, the limited resources he has. He grafts her onto a hand so she can walk around. And, and she essentially plays a backpack, too. They go monster by monster trying to find who stole her body and who is has revenge, who has a uh, those ideas against Frankenstein. It's really fun. It's something I wanted to do something that's completely opposite of what I'm doing with Prospect. Prospects is a little bit of a tougher sell, right? It's it has a lot of lead in. It has this big story about you know the world and the sci-fi of it. I was like, what can I do that's different? Where it's just a very direct story, right? This is character going to destination and just essentially causing as much chaos as they can in between. Now, looking at then Prospects itself here, what was the hardest part about creating that story? Was it the beginning, the middle, or the end? I think it's the middle. It's a little bit of the middle and a little bit of the end. You know, with the beginning, you're so excited about a new idea. It kind of just flows off the page, honestly. You just, you're putting so much out there. You have all the characters. You're just kind of putting them into these different scenes. You're getting all of these kind of scenarios put out that are just so exciting. They're so fun. And then as you start to get to the middle, you start to have to really put the themes into play. And that's where some of them are a little bit tougher to pull out, right? You've already established so much. It's a little bit of really tightening everything up. And that's where it gets a little bit more difficult. And then at the end, I think just writing an end, it's difficult, right? You have to land the characters. It's not like the, you know, with Marvel and how everything writes, it's an infinite path. It never ends. They don't really have to land it. They can just keep going and keep going in perpetuity. Here, it's like, I really have to have it as a solid ending. I think of it like, you know, Stephen King always said how difficult it was to wrap his stories up. Now having to do that finality to it, it it's been more difficult than I imagined it would be. <laughs> so then in your opinion, what's the most important quality of a writer in comics today? And how does that translate to what you've written? It's being very direct. It's having a strong outline. You know, a lot of what I want to do, it's starting from a very, a very simple idea and just putting together the pieces that you need to build off of it. Right, even with prospects, I didn't have a lot when I was first putting the idea together. I just more of had an idea of what I wanted to talk about. Right, I wanted to talk about, you know, who's determining your fate in that age, having kind of aging out of that twenty-five age range. Was it myself really determining what I was, or was it the the area around me? Was it the expectations put on me by everyone else? And that's really what I wanted to start and say. And it's like, how can I do that? And that's where the talent started to come together. That's where the, the two scientists and the characters, as I'm working through it, I, I treat every page the same way, where it's, what do I want to accomplish with this page? And then what do I want to accomplish even with this panel? And then I just slowly add, go, mac, you know, go micro to macro and the, the exact opposite. So it's having a strong outline so you know exactly the story beats that you want to tell. But as you're going to that micro panel by panel, as you're scripting, it's, what do I need the reader the audience to take away from this moment. And that's where you really get into, okay, I can shave off this fluff because if I've done the same thing in two straight panels, I don't need that second panel. I can move on. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of where editing is so also so important where you start to see 
am I doing duplicative kind of methods? Do I need that extra line of dialogue if I've already established it a page before? Strong editing, which is extremely challenging. Editing is very hard. So I, it's just having editing, having a strong outline, and just really breaking it down to that very succinct, this is what I need to accomplish on this page, on this panel, or on this issue. Yeah, it's it's something that a lot of people kind of leave to an afterthought when it comes to creating their mm-hmm. stories as well, too. It's usually, I want to make the, the best story I can and then let someone mm-hmm. else do the editing. The fact that you're self-editing is, is usually a good thing, too, especially with script writing. Yeah, yeah. It's I have... I have a few editors that help me with, but I, I do the lot, the end part. I'm, it's probably a negative trait of me, but I, I am very controlling of the work that I have. So I want to make sure that it is exactly how I want to tell. As you said it, right? You want to make the best possible story. I completely agree. You also want to make the most effective story. And that's what I've seen as being really important is a lot of people, they want to make something great. They get hung up on everything. It's like, but it needs to be simple. It needs to be effective because it has to hit you quickly. And that's a big part of storytelling that you have to work on it to get to that point. <laughs> So what was the hardest scene for you to write? The hardest part for me to write with prospects, as you can tell, when I did, you know, summarizing the story, mm-hmm. it's a little bit all over the place. Even me trying to re-explain it, I'm trying to, I'm going through, there's so many parts that I feel are so important about it <laughs> and that I kind of, I even lose myself. And it's like, how do I get that idea into the story, right? Because I can't just do like all those old eighties movies where they just have a black background with the introduction to set the stage. It's like, where am I finding different spots to kind of do this exposition dump? It's finding little parts of the world to help build that up, but still making it so that at some point it does get explained. And so the, the way I did it was in issue two, right? I had someone recite the town history mm. because that was the only way I could do that exposition dump in a way that made sense. You know, even with the way I was battling with how I built that story, it was very lived in. Right? I wanted that to be purposeful. I didn't want it to be, oh, here's someone new into town. Let's introduce them to it. Right when you get into this, into these stories of one and two, right, it's in the middle of their journey. And I, I did that on purpose. I wanted to feel like you were a part of them and you were experiencing life. So I couldn't do a lot of very common storytelling techniques of just like, oh, hey, we hired an intern and give them the, run, give them the rundown. So I had to find ways to make it feel like you're step-by-step with them, but also introducing the world at the same time. So that was the biggest challenge I had with the story. So I hope it came through. <laughs> no, it did. It, it did. It was one of those things where it had it. It kind of had hints of like shows, TV shows like Eureka and things like that, where it was uh, literally just like you're thrown into it into a small town, but with many secrets type. Deal. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact feel that I wanted it to be. So I'm really glad that you used that as an example because that was ideal what I wanted. <laughs> Well, you hit it out of the park. I, I loved it for that. That was That's for sure. I can't wait to see more of, of the Prospect series. So what's your most underappreciated favorite novel? Wow. That's a good question. Um, underappreciated favorite novel. I'm trying to think of what I had read. Underappreciated, as I, as I referenced, I was going to uh, bring up Dune as an underappreciated <laughs> novel. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a little long-winded but i mean that's the yeah. style of the 70s i mean and, and the artist the, the the writer's name is slipping for me right now um so i'll have to bring it on the back end but they did a book about sequential storytelling and i wish i had it's called frames and it's by an artist who really breaks down how he handles storytelling with comics and uh, it's been really mind mind opening for me i feel really bad because i i got it about a year ago and it really helped me as i was 
you know, coming from screenwriting is what I originally did first. I did not expect the transition from screenwriting to comic script writing to be as much of a challenge as it was. That's a really common, I think, gap that a lot of creators may have is that they expect it to be, I'm going to write dialogue, I'm going to write the scenes out. But what you're expected to do, and if you have a great uh, co-creator and co-artist, like I, you know, John has been fantastic. But at the same time, though, you know, there is an expectation that you're laying out panel by panel, the actions in the panel, how you kind of want them to be seen, and then they take it. And that's a really, that's a huge, huge difference from the idea of just standard screenwriting for a TV or a movie audience. So that's been the biggest part for me that I've had to get used to. And books like that have really helped me into helping better visualize um, that part of the process. So then in, in looking at, so, so obviously this is being published by Band of Bards Publishing. So how did they approach you or how did you approach them with this concept and story? So about a year and a half ago, I had been just going through, I had three issues completed of prospects. I really want to get out to the world. So I'm trying to find different publishers and they had not yet put anything out yet. They were just starting. But a lot of the, I really respected online on Twitter, you know, they're having a lot of great conversations with them. It seemed like they were doing everything right. So they, I noticed that they had submissions open. So I reached out to them. They were very interested, which was great. It's also really awesome is because I'm located in Pittsburgh. Um, Chris and Tim are located in Buffalo. Mm. And they really picked up the one part of the story that if you live in the Rust Belt, it's going to go off of. A lot of this town is built on kind of that that Rust Belt dynamic of just like lower middle class, you stay in the same town your entire life. That time, that town has a very, a very specific mindset and they don't really leave it. And so it was great whenever I, I finally got an opportunity to pitch it. And that's the exact what they grabbed from because they felt so, they felt so in line with what I was talking about because it's, it's the same type of talents that they grew up in their entire lives. So it was really cool having that Rust Belt connection between us. Um, so yeah, it's been a great, great relationship so far and just really, really great working with them. Um, I really dig just like their value, their mission statement, their values about inclusivity, you know, comics doing good. Um, they're working extremely hard to get all their, all their talent, um, their voices heard. Um, they did a ton of work with the Kickstarter. So I'm just really grateful to have them as partners with, with prospects. I couldn't be happier. So what's your creative kryptonite? Oh, creative kryptonite. It is, some are talking about how endings are difficult. It's mm -hmm. pretty similar. I can get to 95% complete and I, I consider it completed. You know, it's that, that last little 5% of that editing, of that really trimming the fat. It's, I sometimes get a little bit too comfortable. I go, you know what, this is good enough, right? Because I'll, it'll always be, right, I'm doing, I'm doing a day job writing, writing at night. So it'll be like 1 a.m. And I, I have the final page written and it's just like, I think this is good. I think this is fine. But really, I should be going the next night, really looking at it, really tightening it up. That's always been my little bit of a difficult where I'm so excited about what I'm putting out there that I instantly want to just show it to the world. I want to send it to my, to my editor. I want to send it to everyone to get perspective when it's like, okay, it needs that last little bit. It's like, I need to take that step back, do it. And that's where I, I've definitely gotten in trouble a few times, putting something out in the world that it probably needed a little bit more time in the oven. Yeah, we've we've all been there in some way, shape, or form. Either whether it's a social media post or tweet or something like that, it's like exactly. I should have held off a few minutes <laughs> on that one. My brain thought faster than my fingers. That's that's it. Exactly. <laughs> See, being that you're you're a film buff, because I can kind of tell on your uh, 
behind you there from all the movie posters that I see. <laughs> just, just a little bit, you know, it's all good. Yeah, uh, I'm glad Clueless is the one that gets uh, is the most show. prominent in that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we I know, right? Look, we we won't judge for your your, your <laughs> film taste. I mean, some of us will, but you know, it's a safe space here on this show. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> What's the first movie that made you cry? Oh man, that's a that is a good question. The one that made the one that really hit me. I'm just saying about being as a kid, right? Because when you're a, a teenage a teenage boy, nothing really nothing really hits you, right? It's all just it never really connects in, in that way. So I'm just trying to think of what what's what's really hit me recently. You know, Manchester by the Sea. Mm-hmm. That was one that like I, I really don't show because that's the that's the one problem with like watching movies whenever like you you grow up trying to write them. You spend so much time trying to dissect them that you don't really absorb them in a way that like some people like they take themselves out and they just go with the moment. And as I'm sometimes when I'm watching movies, I'm sitting there trying to see like, oh, what direction they can take it. You know, oh, that was a really great job of how they how they were to bring that character in in a really subtle way and say these lines. So I sometimes don't get really caught up in the moment of the movies. But Manchester by the Sea was one of those movies that just it really hit me in a way where they did all that so seamlessly that I couldn't even dissect it because it was so it was so perfectly done, and I was just so absorbed in the characters and the moments. And just seeing the main character, how he was able to go through everything, it just really, really hit me in a way that like no movie really has. It stopped making me become, be a critic. And it made me just experience a joy of a movie. So like whenever it started hitting on those emotional beats, I was just blubber at that point. <laughs> what was an early experience where you learned that language had power? You know, this is a funny one. This is, I grew up idolizing Kevin Smith, right? Mm-hmm. He was especially with my age range, you know, older, one of the older millennials, when his movies were extremely popular, that's when I was just getting into movies and seeing what he could do with dialogue, seeing what he was able to do with such, such low budgets, just people in a room talking and he can make it so engaging and so fun to just be a part of that. Um, you know, when I think of clerks, even just thinking of mall rats where he was unapologetically talking and having them, have these characters talk and write and just be parts of things that you just haven't heard before. Right. Just those deep dives in the pop culture that just, it, you know, it's, it's taken so for granted now because of there are just so many think pieces and so many websites dedicated to this. But like back then, like no one talked about comic books or just anything in general, even just like star Wars and just general pop culture in that way. And it was just so refreshing and just seeing how so many different of audiences grabbed onto that, even people who weren't obsessed with it, but they just, they, they understood the fun of conversation. So like, that's something that's always stuck with me is that, you know, really well-written dialogue and really fun characters can carry a movie in a way that I, I just, I really, really loved. So his, I'm, it, it's funny just because like, he's not seen as one of those serious auteur directors, but like, he's had such a profound impact on me. I know a lot of writers who have the same way where like, you know, I, I, I hope, I hope he appreciates, he gets his roses of just how many filmmakers he is, you know, inspired with the way he's approached dialogue. I got to interview Jason Muse actually. And, uh, oh, no and, way. yeah, it, it was up in fan expo Canada. It was up for, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this series or not. It's, mo- it's mainly a Canadian thing, but I'm sure you've heard of Todd in the book of pure evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a Canadian show that, that lasted for two seasons, maybe three, and then it went animated. No, 
two seasons live action, then it did an animated final season type deal. Um, anyhow, so Jason Muse is one of the the actors in in that thing, kind of like a, a, a side part, but mm-hmm. he was in Toronto. Anyhow, he had nothing but good things to say about Kevin Smith and about uh, you know the creativity that that he had and uh, has, I should say, and and everything like that. It was pretty amazing. So to me, it's just like awe-inspiring to see how he just is able to kind of pivot into whatever he wants. You know, I see some of these creators and I'm just like so taken back by they're they're just like, you know what? I just want to do this today. And they do it and it's successful. And I just cannot believe that some people just have this ability to like to use their talents and understand how to put it into every single different type of medium. Like I think it's so cool that he was just like, you know, he's gonna write it because he's obsessed with pop culture. And then he's just gonna create, he's just gonna offhand create an extremely successful podcast network. You know what I mean? And then he's like, well, I'm going to do a road show because I'm going to combine the two things, my actual creations and people love hearing me talk. I'm just going to combine them, which it's, it just, it seems crazy on paper, but because he can just make it work. And it's like, I just cannot believe that there's just people out there that can do that. Nameology I always find interesting when it comes to the creation of your character names, because I think that kind of sets the tone for, you know, ah the world you're building basically, especially main character names specifically. How did you come up with the names of your characters there? Oh man, this is a bad question for me. <clears throat> I like it out of anything. I should, I should have made this my kryptonite. Honestly, I hate naming characters. It's one of the worst things. I, I go to creator, I go to character generator websites to get the names of the characters. Honestly, like Colin and Andrew, they were just developed by, it was like, once again, 2 a.m. I needed a character name. Now, the, the, the two scientists, I put a little bit more thought into them because they what they were mattered a little bit more. Um, like Farsimov, obviously, with the Isimov um, connection. Uh, Grabowski, I just did that because um, I have a big Polish heritage. So I wanted it to have a Polish name. Um, so I had to have a ski somewhere in this story. Um, but you know what? I, I, I focus so much more so on the actions in the world itself that to me, I, I really don't focus on character names. I, I wish I did more because like, as I'm saying them out loud, they have a, a level of standardized uh, kind of feeling to them. <laughs> but it's just something that's never been a part of like when I write, I just, it's kind of like how um, what Donald Glover found his rap name, Childish Gambino by doing the Wu-Tang Clan gen- name generator. That's, I, I read that and after that, I was like, well, I'm not using any of my creative power to make names going forward hey there's some pretty unique names not only for character names but for like fake businesses and all that other stuff too it's amazing what you can do with the dictionary and a couple of genders oh i know right it's it's fantastic and that's why that's exactly it though where it's like it can be stressful when you're like really grinding out some pages and it's like the last thing you want is like to have to sit there for another few hours and trying to think of that perfect company name and it's like you know what there are tools out there take advantage of them (laughs) The team itself, when it comes to, uh, obviously, you're either the co-creator and writer of this prospect series itself. How did you find your team? Because I always find that interesting. A lot of people say that they happen to them by, you know, chance, by circumstance, by a Twitter feed, by something. How did you find your team? So, Jean Franco, he is pretty much the entire art team. He handles pencils, inks, colors, and lettering. Having him as my first on my first project it was a little bit overwhelming when I started hearing how everyone else handles it. And there, you know, there's like, it's like a team of five, right. And there's all these people getting to work with John. And he was like, I, I will handle all this for you. If I have questions, I'll ask you. So only having that one person has been actually, it's been a godsend for 
me on my first project. I'll, I'll say that. When I'd written the first script, I felt really good about it. And there was a community on Reddit called r slash comic collapse. A lot of people similar to in my situation, like they had a tough time finding creators, other creators, other artists, and they were all, it's everyone trying to make, make a project. So I put my script, uh, I posted an r slash comic book collabs. I got a few people who were interested, you know, they posted their DeviantArt pages. I went to Jean's, his, his first image on his website was the exact feel for exactly what I wanted prospects to be. He had that, that animated style, right? It had that feeling of nostalgia, but it was also very visceral and it was very detailed. And I was like, that is exactly what I wanted this world to feel like, right? I wanted it to be nostalgic, like, a, you know, like a warm blanket. But then the, I wanted to show there was an underbelly that was very, very violent. And his art style just perfectly encapsulated both of those feelings of what I needed. Reaching out to him, he, was, he loved it. You know, I tried to give him as much freedom as I could, right? You know, I had two, two distinct characters and they had a kind of a distinct look to them. But I was like, one is zombies, one is robots. That's, that's all I have. So please go forward and see what works best for you and your style. Because as much as it is of me creating, it's just as much as him putting these ideas out into the world as well. So I'm trying to, you know, also have that balance where I'm going to give some direction, but, you know, he is an artist and he is fantastic. Let him do what he does best as well. And so far he's delivered on just some amazing character design. Um, even in, in issue two, it ends with a pretty, a pretty intense battle. And, you know, how he was able to make those two characters similar, but different is fantastic. I'm just so happy with what he's been able to put together so far. So when's issue three coming out? Issue three should be out, I think, bi-monthly. So issue two, the physical issue two, uh, physical and digital issue two just came out last week. Um, digital, you can get through, I think, Global Comics and drive Through Comics, um, two great partners we've had so far. And then did in physical, um, you know, Chris and Tim, are, they're going to start jumping on the con circuit, which would be great. And then also through bandofbards.com, you can get physical. So I think we're doing a bi-monthly schedule. So I would say in a month or two, we can expect issue three. And it has a, there, issue one through three, it really acts as a smaller story. So it has a, it really, it really bleeds well into the other one. So it has a great cliffhanger. So I'm just, I'm so excited for everyone to just read one through three, back to back to back, because it just flows. I'm just really excited for how that, how it's going to come together. Really excited for how three came together and how I think everyone's going to really, really vibe off of it. How many half-finished scripts do you have? Oh my God. It, it's unbelievable. I, that, <laughs> and my, my, my notes in my phone are just scenes that don't even have a story attached to them yet. Quentin Tarantino had a really great line where he wrote in Glorious Bastards. He started by writing the bar scene and then the world came around it. So I've always tried to take that approach to storytelling where it's like, I don't get hung up on doing, I have to do steps one through 10 to make my story. It is, if I have something that I really feel passionately about, I'm going to write that out and then I'm going to build the world around it. Um, and, you know, I've always taken that. So whatever type of motivation I have as something's coming together is what I'll focus on. So I do have, you know, I have, a, I have one right now with two characters in a diner. I don't really know the world that it's involved with, but like I have a story and like, I'm going to build off from that. But I also have one that is more of a traditional outline because that's how I felt comfortable engaging with that world. So it's, it's just different, but I mean, it looks like the, you know, the writings of a madman, if you were to go through my phone right now, cause it's just, 
once again, I hate naming characters. So it's, you know, character one talking to character two, side character B comes in. So it even looks even more nonsensical to anyone on the outside looking in. Previous interview I had before this, uh, similar similar aspect. He's a he's a writer who is also a film buff who's writing scripts, etc. And he's all self taught as well. He's the same way. He doesn't like name generation. But I I mentioned to him, and this is what I was taught in university: was your script really can't go forward without at least a name. You can't just keep yeah. doing man one, man two, woman one, woman two, you know, in a script like you're doing. Unless you solidify the name, you don't know the real path that you're eventually going to to make. Yeah, and that's actually, and it's a great point, um, talking about self-taught versus more of that um, traditional style of teaching. Being self-taught, right, there are a lot of things that, a lot of rules that I bend because I may not know better. But as I'm going forward, I'm trying to really hammer these out, though. You know, I do go to more books that teach more of the fundamentals because they are vital. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the filmmakers that you watch, you know, a lot of the comics that you see, you know, they didn't just break the rules. They they held strong to fundamentals and they bent the rules where they saw fit to make their story at the best. Um, so even though like I feel self-taught, you know, I'm self-taught, I'm doing a lot. As I started to really take it more seriously, I found that I had to start leaning more into some of that traditional that traditional mindset, that traditional learning, like building, like I used to never build outlines. I would just write and then I would just kind of put it together. But as I started to see, right, that's a great when you have a great idea and you have the whole thing figured out, right? Issue one, I was able to just write. Now that I'm getting closer to issue four and the, the well isn't as bountiful as it was, I need to do some of those more traditional fundamentals to help it build. So yeah, I completely agree that you have to have those parts, the characters, the title to really start to, so then when you have to really start getting into the grind and the nitty gritty, it comes a little bit more naturally, or you can lean on the fundamentals to help you build. Cause if you're just leaning on pure talent and excitement, it, you hit a wall. And if you don't have that part, the proper foundation built in place, it's going to beat you every time. It's been interesting also writing and learning how to write as I'm writing. Because you find different things when it comes to the, those that have done things before you. You find little tricks that they maybe they picked up in certain films or in certain TV series or whatever, where it just something clicks in your own mind that you're like, okay, well, this, this what they've did here will help me in here. This will, you know, this director did this amazing scene here. I understand how he or she did that. That can actually transition to something I'm thinking maybe in the future. So, I mean, being self-taught allows you the, the freedom, I think, to be as flexible as as you are with what you're doing. And, and obviously something's working because you're onto issue four. So that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is. And it's a, that's a really great point. And a lot of also what I've done, being self-taught, right? It's, you don't you don't quite know what you don't know. So a lot of time what I had done is, and that's the one great part about social media and the world just being so much more accessible is I would just growing up, you know, I would just burn through feedback session. That was the one trick when I was growing up and I was just obsessed with writing. I would go onto script websites and someone would upload their script. I would read it, not have anything. And then I would read all the feedback so I can see, Oh, am I looking at this correctly? Or, you know, is this wrong? And then someone else is seeing it. So it really, for me being self-taught, it was getting as much feedback as I could in different ways and from different people. 
and seeing how other people are doing feedback. Even when I was doing a lot more blogging, doing a lot more comic reviews, doing video game reviews, I was doing kind of the same thing. Whereas I would write it out. I wouldn't let anyone else change my perspective. Then I would go and I would compare what I'd put together against the other bloggers of the world because I want to see what am I missing? Or how did someone approach something that I didn't like or it was my preference, but I can see it being said in a different way. And it's like, I'm going to use that going forward. It's about really absorbing the world around you as you're writing so that you can really gain that feedback. It's been really helpful having all these creators, especially on Twitter. I think of like Jim Zub. Um, he's, he's so open about the process and getting to hear his perspective of how he approaches everything that he's done so far in his career and just everyone coming up with me at the same time. I think of that r slash combo collabs. There's a few creators who kind of started the exact same spot, seeing where they're at now and seeing their success and just like how they got into that process. I can bounce things off of them. Um, it's been, it's been vital. You know what I mean? I, I could not imagine doing this in 1995 where you just, you do not have that, that group that you can instantly get feedback from. I, it's, it'd be such an uphill battle. Then quickly as a journalist, you know, how has being a journalist helped you as a comic book writer, especially when you were a critic as well? It helped a lot. It really, it really helped me better understand structure of comics. Because at that point, I'd read comics my entire life, but I was growing up. I was only, I grew up idolizing like Brian Michael Bendis, Martin Millar, guys who once again going in that Kevin Smith mindset. It was all dialogue. But as I started to have to be a critic and review comics, I started to have to really absorb the entirety of it, the art, the layouts how they're handling pacing. And that really helped me as I was putting things together to understand how everyone else did it. And that, it was great. I worked with um, Comicosity and they're a great website. They handle, you know, the big companies, but also a lot more indie because they, they definitely believe in getting more voices out there. So I was able to review, you know, Marvel Comics, DC Comics, but at the same time, smaller publishers, which then again, gave me that that very nice perspective of how everyone's of how everyone is handling creation. Um, and that was really, really helped me. I felt more comfortable writing going forward after I had, I had gotten to do a few hundred reviews because once again, getting to really break it down to see what their comics are made out of, it, it was, it was really vital. Is there anything I haven't brought up that you'd like to showcase those that are watching and listening to this interview? You know, just prospects in general issues one and two are out. They are fantastic, speaking personally, selfishly. But Band of Bards, they're doing a lot right now. They're about to do another Kickstarter that goes live on Monday on Zoo, which is fantastic. They're, they're giving another platform, um, an opportunity for crowdsourcing. So it's Sentience, great talent on the team. Chris and Tim are doing a great job getting it started. So definitely look out for, for that. Um, there's a few really great Kickstarters going on right now. Um, I think of, he is Frankenstein Underground. He works with the website Comic Book Yeti. And they have given a great voice to indie comics. Um, and they've really focused the past year on crowdfunding comics, um, smaller publishers. And he has a Kickstarter going on right now. It's fantastic. It also, on top of that, what him and his and Comic Getty do for the community are so important. So, you know, listening to this, a small, you know, a writer with a small with a smaller publisher, having that journalist side almost just as vital. Because it, it really is a two-way street for us. And I know it could, being on your side as well, you know, doing the interviews and hearing these creators, they do have a tough time because these big publishers, I mean, it's not their fault, but they do take all the oxygen out of the room. So giving creators that opportunity, it's so important. 
I mean, I, I really can't say how important like just this conversation is and just what some of these websites like Complicetti do for the community. So, you know, those are just some, a few things I would really like to just shine a light on. I'm thinking, um, also, um, one of the, one of the guys that I'm with on r slash Complicetti Labs that I've come up with known him for years, he has a Kickstarter going on right now. If you search his name on Kickstarter, um, definitely give him an opportunity. Um, he's been doing great work. He's been self-published this entire time, five years. He's had a few titles under his belt. So once again, it's just it's just great seeing a community together, just working on things, doing different ways, and just seeing how large this self-publishing world, this small publishing world is. Really exciting. And it's ever-evolving too. It's mm-hmm. it's amazing what else is coming down and and you know, in a month's time or a week's time or whatever it is, I'm sure there's going to be much more in the future. Of yeah, very much so. Very excited. At what point are we good enough? Oh. <laughs> I mean, never. I mean, that is the toughest. <laughs> That's the toughest thing for me at this point in my career. Um, and I've, I've always, my wife yells at me every time I'm so hard on myself, but it's really tough to break out of that failure mindset. As I was saying, how important it is having that community with you in the back of your head, you're always comparing them. You're right. You're always using them as a benchmark. If you're not hitting the steps that they're hitting, it, it's tough to break out of that mindset. I, I never feel it's good enough. I have three successful Kickstarters, but if you asked me, I'd say that they all failed because they didn't raise enough money as the person I was, you know, co- coincidentally running a Kickstarter next to. It's a very tough mindset. It's, it's a good mindset in the way that it breeds competition, right? You're, you're never settled. So you're always trying to push the boundaries, right? I never feel comfortable. So I'm always trying to find that new technique or that new way to tell a story that will get me ahead. But at the same time though, it is a little bit exhausting always being in a fail state, um, which is, which is tough. And then, you know, going back to the idea of being self-taught, doing a lot of that, it's tough to shake imposter syndrome. You don't know what you don't know. You walk into these rooms, everyone has the degrees, you know, they have such a large resume. It's tough just putting your work against theirs, knowing that you just don't, you don't have the background. That's also been a challenge for me in all aspects of my life, trying to think that I'm a, I, I deserve to be at the same table as some of these big dogs. It, it's, I'm, I'm still working through it. I'll just say that. What's the second wisest thing someone has ever said to you that has stuck with you in your career? It's that no one will wait for you. It's a big challenge, especially younger in my career. You know, I was always expecting someone was going to grab me and put me through the process. You have to be the one who's going to be proactive with your with what you want to do. You can't wait around expecting someone to find you, right? You need to be the one who's who's out there putting your work in front of people, either you know, to try and sell it or just creatively. You know, when I was younger, I thought everyone had all the time in the world to look at random scripts online. But as I get older, you understand that everyone has so much on their plate. They're not trying to just find random people to pluck out and to give a career. You have to work extremely hard and you have to be proactive and you just, you cannot wait around. What, what someone told me is he said, never wait. You have to be the one who goes and does it. It's really important, right? When you get to a certain point of your career, yeah, people will look for you. But until then, they don't know you exist until you let them know that you exist. So you have to keep pushing. What lesson in life did you learn the hard way? You know, you have to be able to bend. I definitely had a few publisher interactions that I regret from, you know, a few years ago where they don't have time to wait for you. They don't have time for you to learn on the job. I was very controlling over my work and I wasn't really bending and they don't have time to handle a diva attitude when they have all these things 
profit margins are razor thin. There's some people knocking on the door to work with them. They aren't going to wait around for me to kind of work for what I need at that point. So it was that that inability to work with teams. And that's why, you know, I'm, I'm so appreciative of Band of Bards and Chris and Tim because, you know, they are very open. They, they have a great communication. So it's really great. It's been a great relationship working with them. But I think about times where, you know, I had opportunities. I'm not quite sure if it was arrogance, if it was ego. I wasted them because I was so unwilling to bend. And, and it, it has hurt me. So it's been a great learning experience. It's about people and it's about partnerships and collaboration just as much as it is about your perceived genius work. Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? I've been bringing up a lot of directors and a lot of writers, so I'm not going to go that direction. I'm going to bring up my my grandpap. He wasn't a writer. He was a once again. He worked at the mill. He was just a big union guy. You know, he he just did his, his nine to five. He came home. But the thing he did is he was always so excited to hear me tell stories. He told me how good of a storyteller I was at a young age, and it made me excited to tell more stories. And it's one of those little things where he didn't have the background. He wasn't critiquing or telling me how to be a better storyteller. He just said, hey, I really like that you do this. You should do more of it. And like, it's those small little interactions that you don't expect that make such a profound impact on someone. But me in my formative years, giving someone the joy of, being, of telling them a fun story, right? that was enough to make me want to learn it on my own. So even though, yeah, he wasn't the one who taught me the foundational elements of storytelling, him just being there and just being like, Hey, you, you know, I really love this little story you told. That was enough for me to do what I needed on my side to get better. From a professional perspective, you are now a published author or soon to be published author, I should say with uh, volumes one, two, three, and up to five or more of prospects from Band of Bards. So professionally you are successful. Do you consider yourself personally successful? I, I don't. I don't. It's tough. You know, I'm always looking for that next one. And I, it is a big part, right? You celebrate the wins, even if they're small wins, but I have trouble doing it. I, I, you know, at this point, I would consider it not a failure, but needs improvement on the scale. <laughs> so it depends on who asks me right now, because I think, you know, I want to give candid reactions of what it is like being uh, a smaller creator who might not have the amount of accolades under their belt and who are struggling with it. But yeah, it, it is, it is a challenge. And I, I do see it. it. It depends on how I wake up. Sometimes I feel like a failure. Sometimes I feel like I'm on top of the world, but a constant battle. The reverse of success is failure since you brought up failures yourself as well too. <laughs> how do you deal with your failure? You know, just trying to make it as black and white as possible. Trying to look at it, not from emotion, right? Like what really, what actually happened? What was the failure? That I can break down, take all the emotion out of it, and just see what went wrong, right? When I, in my previous example, right, it's just a project for that publisher. But for me, it was my life's work at that point. And it's like, take all that out and just see what it was. It was a conversation that two people were just sparring. And it's like, okay, here to make that conversation better, I should have went in this direction. I should have allowed this type of feedback. And that's how you have to just take all emotion out, look at what happened to cause that failure. And just approach it in that way. The young generation is looking at your work and becoming inspired to be creative in their own way. And the fact that you have the younger generation with you in, in, in twos at that point are looking at you as an inspirational person. They eventually will, I'm sure. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? 
I think it's just always be learning. It's always be writing, always be learning, like always be creating, but knowing that it's always a consistently moving process. It's never an end state. And that's what's been really helpful for me once again is I'm still learning as I'm writing. I don't consider it that I've got my education. Now I'm just going to write in the way that I do. It's always trying to learn, always trying to be better. And that's what's going to really help you as a creator going forward. And that's what should be kind of inspiring is to know that you never what you were five years ago and you can be better in five more years. If you're learning, if you're working really hard, if you're looking at your work, taking in feedback, that you can always improve, always be absorbing the world around you and really trying to just experience, you know, different types of culture that you might not have been experienced, that you might not have experienced with to get that better perspective of what life is, right? Your characters are going to be more nuanced and they're going to be fuller if you really get to actually see how they live. And that's by experiencing their lives. That's by watching their type of, you know, watching their documentaries, watching their, their creations is how you're going to get a better perspective. So I think it is just experiencing the world and always be learning. Last question I have before we wrap things up here is, since you are a movie buff, I would be very remiss if I did not ask this question. If your life became a live action film, what would its title be? And because you are a Tarantino fan as well, too, what would the soundtrack be? It'd be imposter syndrome. That'd be the title right there. It'd be a constant struggle in every part of me trying to figure out who the imposter is. I think of the soundtrack. That's a good one. You know, it would be, it would be interesting talking about a life of someone who's obsessed with movies, that my soundtrack would be my favorite songs from other soundtracks. So it'd be my personal mixtape of Quentin Tarantino movies and Edgar Wright movies. So it, as you're experiencing it, thinking that, hey, this is, this is who I am, but really all I am is what I've been influenced by. So my soundtrack is a mix of everything that I've, I've grown up with, right? So it's just, you know, three songs from Reservoir Dogs and then two songs from Django and then essentially all of Baby Driver. <laughs> well, Max, well, I do hate to say this, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. Before I let you go, and you have survived, so congratulations. Thank you. Where can we find you? How can we support you online and through social media? So I'm mostly on Twitter um, at Snowball Max. Um, and I'm on Instagram, not as much. Maxwell Modernic Comics. Um, obviously, Prospects 1 and 2, they are, you can get them through Band of Bards, through the website. You can get them physical through the website with Band of Bards. Uh, they are also with Drive Through Comics um, and Global Comics. So you can get them digitally on both of those ways. Um, and yeah, pretty much just Band of Bards for Prospects right now and Snowball Max on Twitter. Well, thank you again, Max, for coming on the show. Greatly appreciate it. Of course, you can find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. And our YouTube channel is actually way more updated than our website because I'm the only person doing all of that stuff. <laughs> so that's at youtube.com forward slash tgtmedia. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening, watching on Two Geeks Talking.